Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. It's my ambition uh, for Fangraphs Audio that it become a place not only to talk about baseball in the sort of analytical way which Fangraphs readers have become accustomed, but also to bring that sort of style of thinking to issues or concerns or, or topics that might also engage our readers. Essentially, to, to use that same part of our brain with which we analyze baseball uh, to analyze other endeavors or pursuits. In today's edition of the podcast, I think we do a pretty good job of that. My guest is Dave Cameron, of course, the managing editor of Fangraphs. And what follows, Dave and I uh, discuss not only the recent trade of John Jaso from the Tampa Bay Rays to the Seattle Mariners for relief pitcher Josh Lukey. Uh, we discuss not only the firing of Houston Astros GM Ed Wade, the trade from the Cleveland Indians of Luis Valbuena, the Toronto Blue Jays for cash considerations. We discussed not only those things, but we also look at Dave Cameron's illness, his bout with leukemia and subsequent chemotherapy treatments, uh, in a similarly analytical way. Dave has a particularly flexible mind for this sort of thing and is able to give some answers to some questions about his illness uh, that are the sort that might be particularly compelling for Fangraph's readers. We're calling this episode of the podcast The Complete Dave Cameron. It was a lot of fun to do. And I hope it is enjoyable for the listener as well. Here's my interview, um, my weekly interview, with Mr. Dave Cameron. Are you uh, recovering from Thanksgiving? Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I tried not to overeat, uh, mostly because uh, due to the chemotherapy, I haven't been allowed to work out since July. So I figured that stuffing my face while not being allowed to exercise was probably a poor idea. What does what does that do for your body? I I think people typically get thinner, right, during that. Yeah. So like when I initially went into the hospital for the first three weeks treatment, I lost about 15 pounds, um, mostly because I wasn't eating at all. <laughs> the initial chemo was pretty rough. Um, since then, I've gained most of that back. So my appetite returned. Uh, it basically returns in between chemotherapy sessions, um, and since I'm not allowed to work out, uh, it's easy to gain weight. So it goes down when I'm in the hospital, it goes up when I'm not. Well, uh, when you, why, why are you allowed to work out? So essentially, the uh, one of the symptoms of leukemia and the subsequent chemotherapies is lowering your blood cell counts. So uh, there's a... Um, Essentially, the blood cell that runs your energy levels, I have about 75% of those, and so I'm more prone to passing out if my heart gets racing quickly or uh, probably not understanding my actual limits given my current physical state. So what I used to be able to do and what was normal for me would now probably cause me to uh, just fall down unexpectedly, and they don't really want me like hitting my head on the concrete if I'm out going for a run. No, no, and uh, as much as... Uh, you frustrate me sometimes. I don't. I don't want you doing that either. Yeah, I, I know that that's a secret desire of yours, but you can <laughs> keep it private for now. You know, uh, Cameron. One thing I, I was talking with. Um, I think you've met him. Uh, he claimed to meet you. I was talking with um, Chris Liakis, formerly of Walk Off. Yeah, Hall. yeah. I met, met him up in New York last year. Yeah, and he had some really nice things to say about you, which was shocking to me, of course. But well, he, he was drinking when he met me. So. Right, right. <laughs> Makes him more palatable. But um, yeah. we we were sort of uh, he was asking about about you and um I had stated and I and I meant this uh, I really did uh, because uh, I you know I do care about you and I meant this in the uh, in the kindest way was that 
if someone were to get the illness that you've gotten, it, you're kind of the ideal person to get it in the sense that I feel like your approach to treatment was so um, – it was both – you have a great sense both from an analytical point of view and also from an emotional point of view of how to deal with it. Um, uh, I would say that's probably fair. Yeah, and and actually that's one thing I'm curious about. I know that um, there was in your sort of initial post about about uh, your illness and in the the treatment that was to come, you were pretty clear about. You mentioned sort of throwing out the odds. How it's sort of a yeah. it's a binary relationship for the individual, even though there are probabilities yeah. based on you know what what illness you're diagnosed with. But one of the things you talked about was. Um, the, the importance of, of elements like community and maybe prayer um, in terms of the health of the individual. I know that you're part of a faith community, and I don't necessarily need you to, to talk about that, but I am curious what you would say to people who have a similar, who are in a similar state who don't necessarily have a ready-made community. Yeah, I would I would say that I would feel bad for them, first of all. I mean, certainly one of the reasons that I've been able to um, uh, endure is probably not the right word, but, you know, keep my spirits up and not uh, let this diagnosis lead me into, you know, depression or some kind of uh, just state where I'm, I'm feeling sorry for myself a lot is because of the great people that I have around me, between my wife and my friends and my church. And uh, I have a lot of constant support and a lot of reasons to... Um, see all the good in my life. And so I think, you know, one of the keys for me over the last few months has been to look around at all the amazing uh, things I have and, and the areas of my life where I'm extremely lucky. Uh, and so then it, it put in that light, uh, you know, one bad health diagnosis pales in comparison to all the things that I do have. And among those things that I cherish highly are the relationships I have with people. And so I think if I didn't have those things, the uh, sickness would maybe loom a little larger and seem like it was uh, maybe a more dominant part of my life than it is. Um, and so I guess if somebody is, you know, in a similar position to me and and gets diagnosed with a potentially fatal disease early in their life, um, I would encourage them to mend any relationships that need mending. I mean, certainly if there are family, I mean, most people have family members, uh, even if they're estranged, that, you know, in this kind of time, uh, a lot of those walls get broken down, and I think that, you know, we can see some of the pettiness of uh, infighting and personal strife that can arise. It's just not really all that important, and so when you have a, a cancer diagnosis, I think there's an opportunity for a lot of those fences to get mended, um, and I would encourage anyone in, in a similar situation uh, or with a family member in a similar situation to not let those kind of things um, prevent you from really being there as a support or to be supportive to somebody uh, who really, you know, desperately needs friends and relationship and uh, encouragement. Is there anything that's that's surprised you uh, over this process? Like, I mean, it could be like, it could be something really small or, or large too. Uh, I would say that I'm surprised in how little I think about dying. Uh, I, you know, upon the initial diagnosis, I didn't go into this a ton on the site, but uh, when I first got diagnosed in July, they gave me about a 30 to 40% chance of living five years, which means that, uh, you know, better than a coin flip's chance of me dying before I turned 35. Those are not great odds. And so, um, I, you know, I think I expected that given that kind of diagnosis and given that kind of um, understanding of uh, the ratio of my chance of living a long time, 
your reaction or my reaction would be to, you know, do the bucket list kind of thing where you take every trip you've ever dreamed of and you eat every food you've ever wanted to eat and you say things to people that you've always wanted to say and you kind of, like, get your affairs in order in case something dramatically terrible happens. And uh, I think I've been surprised at how I didn't really want to do any of that. Uh, and, you know, I haven't gone on any big trips in part because I'm tied to a hospital for chemotherapy for the next little while. But, uh, you know, in my heart is the desire to be normal. And so... Uh, the things that excited me that I wanted to do were write about baseball and hang out with my wife and play games and, uh, you know, just kind of uh, do things that don't remind me that I have cancer. And so rather than trying to fit the rest of my life into the next five years, uh, the, the priority has been to just live as if I'm not going to die. And so, you know, um, some people might say that's naive and that I should uh, adjust understanding that I might not have, you know, another 50 years here on Earth, but I think I would rather live my life every day as if, uh, you know, I have a long time to live rather than trying to overcompensate for the fact that I might die. Yeah. Now, uh, is there anything that you think you'll you'll sort of bring with you? Because, because I mean, as of now, the, sta- the status is that you have no leukemia in your body, and you're actually, I believe you're going in. Is it your, is it your last chemotherapy treatment? Um, coming up this Wednesday? Yeah, Tuesday. It's actually, I go, I go oh. in tomorrow morning. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, this is my final consolidation round. So there was one initial treatment, and then that was followed by three uh, consolidation rounds, which are essentially, uh, you don't have any leukemia in your body, but they nuke you anyway in order to make sure they didn't miss anything hiding in the first time they got you. And so it lowers your chance of recurrence. Your chance of recurrence and acute myeloid leukemia is still pretty high even with the consolidation rounds, but it lowers the chance of the leukemia coming back. So, um, But this is my final round. I go in tomorrow, and I'll be in for the rest of the week. Um, but then assuming that the leukemia doesn't come back, I mean, we basically have a two- to five-year waiting period to see if it's going to return. Uh, if it doesn't come back in, within the next five years, then I'm considered cured, and it's unlikely that it will ever return. Um, so that's obviously what we're shooting for. It's five years, no leukemia, and then I can get on with my life, in a sense. Um, and if it does come back, then we're dealing with bone marrow transplant and you know other unfriendly things that we'd rather not deal with. Yeah, let's let's not deal with those. Do you think that there's anything that you're going to bring with you from your experience to when you sort of come, you know, reach that? Uh, I guess it'll it'll be a, a brief limbo, but we'll say that there's a, a good chance that you'll that you'll end up in that cured area. Do you sort of foresee you bringing anything? from your experience to that? I mean, you sort of mentioned that, you know, living every day, just doing the things you like to do. I wonder if that or, or some other thing that you'll take with you from it? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly uh, I would say that, you know, my perspective on life has changed dramatically since July. I mean, uh, I think overall I've, I've had, I wouldn't want to say the revelation, but kind of a, a shift in mindset of what's important. Um, and so, you know, I think going forward, assuming that I survive. Uh, that's, that's what we're aiming for and we're, that's what we're believing for is, uh, you know, I would hope that the next 35 years of my life would be much more about um, building into people, building relationships, building into things that matter, uh, and a lot less about things that are temporal and things that are, um, you know, not long-lasting. So I think, you know, the focus of my life has shifted into uh, a heavy emphasis on relationships and um kind of making sure that the people who are close to me understand how important they are and they're the priority. So, you know, if now if I have a chance to spend time with my wife, even if she's 
you know, shopping or crocheting or doing something that I might not enjoy, I'm going to choose that over watching a baseball game. And I mean, I love baseball and I'm still certainly still going to watch baseball, but I think the priorities have shifted and I would hope that, uh, maybe it's a more correct priority. And so for the rest of my life, that the, uh, priority will still be my family, uh, over things that, you know, are going to dissipate. Well, I think it, uh, it's a testament to, to the power of, of that change that, that you will actually choose to go shopping. <laughs> this, this. Well, part, part of the reason I, that I go shopping with my wife is to constrain the spending. Like she goes by herself, and there's a chance that she'll come home with thousands of dollars worth of things. Right. Whereas if I'm there, my presence might deter some things that would get purchased otherwise. Right. right. Well, let's let's talk about uh, the one of your main interests, which of course is baseball, and uh, something you know a lot about. There's a we've we've it's been about a week since we've talked and a bunch of stuff has happened. I, I think probably most recently slash notably is the trade of John Jaso uh, from the Rays to the Mariners. Yeah, when, that, when that's the notable transaction of the last week, you know it's going to explode. Week. Well, yeah, right. But it's it's I guess it's curious for a couple reasons. One, it involves the Rays getting rid of the guy who's been mostly their starting catcher for the last couple of years. And we know that I feel like any time the Rays are involved in a trade, you feel like they're, like, that they're gonna, that they're getting the upper hand somehow. I, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily always the case, but we know that they're very smart. They're trading him to the, to the Mariners, another front office, and of course a front office with which you're acquainted, uh, for a player in Josh Lukey, who I think has some natural talent, but also has some off the field issues. Uh, what, what's your, what was your reaction to, to that trade and especially the, maybe the Rays getting rid of their starting catcher? Yeah, I mean, I think Jaso last year only got about 270 plate appearances. He split time with Kelly Shopak, uh, or Shopak, however you want to say his name, um, more than he was a starter. And I think especially in the second half of the year after he had an oblique injury, he really didn't play all that much. So, uh, I think they looked at Jaso as a part-time, uh, platoon guy at best. And uh, today they signed uh, Jose Molina, one of the famous catching Molinas, uh, who looks like he's going to take over the starting catching job in Tampa Bay. So most likely they looked at it and said, hey, look, if we're giving Jose Molina the starting job, uh, then then Jaso's time here is going to be mostly the backup. Perhaps that's a role we could give to Robinson Chernos or one of the other catchers in the system. Uh, and so then, you know, would we rather have Jaso as a backup or would we rather have Josh Lukey in the bullpen, and they chose Josh Lukey in the bullpen. Uh, I'm not sure that's the wrong choice for the Rays, but I will say that in general, trading a potential starting catcher, or at least a catcher who has the ability to start for some teams in the major leagues, for a middle reliever is generally not a great idea. Uh, middle relievers, as we know, are fungible. Um, they, they come and go very quickly. Uh, they, their careers don't last very long. They're, they're inconsistent at best. Um, you know, I, I, like Lukey. Uh, fireballing ninth inning guy who's going to turn into a high leverage uh, relief ace and be worth you know two wins a year. More likely he's going to be a decent seven or eighth inning guy and be a you know a half win to a one win player. Uh, will he help the Rays? P- possibly. Is it worth giving up a guy who might be able to start at catcher for half the teams in the league? Uh, I'm not so sure about that. Right before the break, we had a guest post from Alex Lewin of Baseball Info Solutions. Um, Sort of uh, probably expanding on the notion of relief pitcher value, and 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 probably to the you know speaking to the point that they're generally not worth as much as they're getting paid. Um, the Rays have been uh, famously one of the best teams in recent years at building bullpens. I think it, 
2010, they had a they had a pretty excellent bullpen, and I think they let basically their entire bullpen wa- uh, walk and received a number of compensation picks in the process, and then had another decent bullpen in 2011. Does is this is this part of that same process for the Rays? I mean, certainly, I think the Rays look at it and say, you know, with their payroll, they can't afford to pay the market prices for relief pitchers. So, you know, when a Joaquin Benoit or a Rafael Soriano have a really nice year for them, the reality is that those people are going to leave and go get significant money from other teams. So they're going to have to replace those guys with other low-cost players. So the Rays are going to be in a perpetual uh, rebuilding their bullpen mode, I and mean, that's just going to be how it works. Is, uh, as relievers get expensive, they will get rid of those relievers and replace them with cheaper relievers in order to keep their payroll down. And it's actually not a bad idea in building a bullpen. And I, I wouldn't say that acquiring Josh Lukey is a bad idea uh, from a baseball perspective. We could, you know, talk about his uh, personal issues and, you know, whether he's a guy you want in your organization. It's a separate issue. But from an on-field standpoint, acquiring Josh Lukey is a pretty good idea. He'll help their bullpen. He's cheap. Uh, they're not going to have to pay him anything for three years. So if he does turn into a good reliever, then they have a, a good middle reliever for the next uh, several years at the league minimum. I guess the question is, given his baggage and given uh, his abilities, is giving up John Jaso for Josh Lukey a good idea? And uh, I'm not convinced that it is. And now Jaso for the Mariners, is he going to become at least the the strong side of that catching of a catching platoon there? Well, I think it kind of depends on Eric Wedge. I mean, I think if you look at Miguel Olivo and John Jaso, there's a very natural platoon there. I mean, Olivo is a right-handed power guy. Uh, with a pretty good throwing arm, but no other skills whatsoever. He can hit left-handed pitching, uh, okay. I mean, he's not a great, he's, he's such an aggressive hitter that he's not going to be good against anyone, but he's better against lefties than he is against righties. Um, and JFO has not hit right, left-handed pitching well at all in his career, so you would think that, uh, you know, a platoon of JFO and Olivo could actually be decently useful. Um, but Miguel Olivo was definitely a fan favorite of Eric Wedge's last year with the way he played. He's a hustle guy, he's an energy guy. Uh, he dives into first base. Uh, he plays hurt. He does all the things that managers love. He's extremely passionate and fiery and a fiend of a veteran team leader. So whether Wedge is going to be willing to uh, take those qualities out of the lineup in exchange for a guy who had 220 with no power last year uh, remains to be seen. Wedge is not a guy who's traditionally shown that he values the base on balls all that highly, and that's maybe Jason's primary asset is his ability to take a walk. So um, I think... Jaso's going to have to get off to a pretty good start, and Olivo's going to have to slump quite a bit in order for the playing time to flip. And my guess is Olivo will start the year as a, begin the year as a starting catcher, um, but hopefully it becomes pretty clear pretty soon that Jason is the better player. Okay, that's so that's the Lucky Jaso trade. That's item item one on the, the this list of baseball items. Item two is the firing of Ed Wade. Uh, recently, Jim Crane bought the Houston Astros. That was uh, publicized um, a lot last week. We discussed that um, end of the week before that. Uh, now, with uh, the new ownership group um, comes presumably a new GM. Uh, Ed Wade. <laughs> Ed Wade is, I sort of guess, infamous among Fangraphs authors and readers. Uh, do you do you see them going in a different direction, perhaps a slightly more uh, savvy uh, GM in terms of that that uh, organization? Yeah, I, th- I think what we've seen is every new owner who's bought a team in recent years has almost immediately come in and uh, demanded an analytical based GM. It seems like the the people who are buying into baseball teams uh, of late are realizing, you know, they all read Moneyball, they all realize the way the sport is going, and they made their money mostly through similar economic principles of 
uh, you know, arbitrage and ability to find value, and so they're going to demand the same thing out of their executives. Uh, so I would expect that the Astros are going to hire uh, one of the young assistant GMs who was trained in that school of thought and thinks along those lines. There's a name thrown out like Andrew Friedman. I don't know if they can get him away from Tampa Bay, but, you know, there's Thad Levine and A.J. Preller in Texas, um, and there's a host of uh, good assistant GMs around the game. Rick Hahn's name has been brought up in almost every opening this offseason. I would imagine they'll hire somebody of that ilk in order to retool the Astros from the ground up, and there's probably not an organization in baseball that needed this more than Houston did. Yeah, speaking of young GMs, uh, this, of course, brings us to number three. Uh, Alex Anthopoulos and Chris Antonetti are two of the uh, sharpest young GMs in the game, and they actually conducted a trade uh, the last couple days here. Um, well, cash considerations going from Toronto to Cleveland in exchange for Luis Valbuena. Valbuena is an interesting player because in the minor leagues, even at the, the AAA level, he's been a decent, I guess, a decent middle infielder, probably more skewing towards second base, uh, but also has had an excellent bat and not just sort of BABIP, uh, not just propped, propped up by batted ball luck. The major league level, he has failed to produce. Um, you know, even sort of approaching uh, that benchmark that he set in the minor league. I'm curious, is is Valbuena, does he, I mean, obviously if Anthopoulos is investing in him, he sees something there. Is he a character, is he a quad A type who just won't be able to reproduce that same offensive level at the major league level, or has he just gotten unlucky as a major leaguer? I mean, I think there's definitely a, uh, there's an aspect of truth to both. So, I mean, Valbuena's minor league numbers are heavily inflated by pretty good walk rates. Uh, so one of the things that he's been able to do in, in the lower level of the minors and even in AAA is use his selectiveness to get on base. Um, and that has not worked at all at the major league level where major league pitchers see the uh, 5-9 middle infielder and they throw the ball down the middle. And so Valbuena doesn't have enough power to scare major league pitchers into pitching around the zone. And his eye at the plate and contact skills aren't so fantastic that he can work walks uh, even when a pitcher is throwing strikes. And so I think overall the skill set that he's displayed in the minor leagues is one that doesn't translate to the major leagues as well as some others. Um, but there are skills there. I mean, the ability to take a pitch and understand the strike zone is uh, something that, you know, is a valuable skill even if it doesn't work as well in the majors as it does in the minors. And so I think Valbuena is a guy who is worth taking a flyer on, especially if all you had to give up to get him is cash. But uh, I think the fact that he's been atrocious in his major league career um, should serve as at least something of a warning sign. I mean, uh, it's not that he's just not succeeded. He's been one of the worst players in baseball when he's been given a chance. And so, you know, as a second baseman, he's not really a shortstop. I mean, he can play there in an emergency, but he's more of a second baseman you need to be able to hit a little bit in order to uh, provide value at the major league level. And Balbuena's primary skills so far in the majors haven't worked. And if it doesn't uh, come around soon, I'm not sure he'll hit enough to be a, a regular everyday player at the major league level. He could be a decent enough utility infielder at cost league minimum, but I'm not sure there's a ton of upside here for Toronto. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I anecdotally, or, and I, I'm not pointing to anything specific, but I feel like, Skills like contact rate and home run rate, um, they translate more readily uh, between the minor leagues and the major leagues, and walk rate doesn't. I'm curious, off the top of your head, do you remember any studies to that effect, or is that just something you sort of observed? Uh, no, I mean, it's definitely an issue that's been studied. I think most of the ones that I can recall reading are from quite a while ago. So I know Chris Dial did some work on this maybe 10 years ago. 
uh, and it was published in an old forum called Rexport Baseball, it was a Usenet news group, um, and he's done some work on that. Uh, and then I know Dan Zaborski has also researched this for Zips projections, and he and I have talked about this a bit, uh, where this is a, the the high walk skill set in the minors is something that uh, Zips isn't particularly a, a big fan of, and so there are a lot of times when Zips projections come out for young prospects who have you know good slash lines in the minors. Uh, you know, high on base guys, 380, 400, like Derek Barton type of hitters, and Zips thinks that they're going to flop miserably at the major league level, and Dan's explanation is that he's consistently found that walk rates don't translate nearly as well as other skills, and I think that's supported by the other research I've read, and just, you know, from watching baseball, it seems to be true that if you don't scare a pitcher and you don't offer enough power to make them pitch around you, that you better have some fantastic contact rate in order to be able to foul balls off or uh, be able to reach pitches on the edge of the strike zone. Because if you swing and miss and you don't have a lot of power, pitchers aren't going to walk you. Right, and so so what creates walk rates in the major league level then? Is it more tied to power or your or ability to make strong contact generally? I mean, I, I would say that the, the number one indicator of a player's walk rate is going to be his power. So that's not going to be true in every case. You're going to have guys like Mike Stanton, um, who just you know refuse to walk and swing aggressively at everything they see, and they're not going to be high walk guys, even though they have the power to be. But I think if you look at the guys who lead the league in walks every year, it's guys who also have the ability to 40 or 50 home runs because pitchers are being careful with those guys. So if you're wondering how do you find a hitter who walks, start with a guy who can hit the baseball a long way. Uh, there are certainly exceptions to the rules. Guys like Ricky Henderson or Tony Phillips are little guys, speed guys who have drawn a lot of walks over their careers, but they they do it with uh, fantastic play discipline and high contact. It can work, but it's a more rare ability than just the ability to instill fear in an opposing pitcher. What about Sean Figgins in 2009? I mean, Figgins is another example of a guy who probably shouldn't have walked a lot, but did in his days with the Angels. Um, but I do think it's interesting that uh, as his uh, power has decreased over the last couple of years, his walk rate has also dried up. I mean, he walked in about 6.5% of his plate appearances last year because pitchers were no longer afraid of him driving the ball into the gap and getting a double or a triple. So I think there's a minimum level of power required in order to draw walks unless you just have amazing contact rates. I'd point to, like, Luis Castillo is kind of like the bare minimum. This is a guy who just never, ever, ever swings and misses. So he was able to draw walks by working counts because you couldn't you couldn't strike him out. Even in a 3-2 count, he would foul the ball off or put the ball in play. So pitchers weren't able just to groove one down the middle um, but he's a guy with zero power who was able to draw walks in 10 or 11% of his plate appearances. But, you know, you have to have a minimum level of some ability to drive the ball or extremely high contact rates in order to make that work. Brett Gardner, similar idea? Gardner is a somewhat similar idea. I do think that uh, part of his super high walk rate might not be sustainable. So he basically walked a lot by just never swinging the bat. I think Gardner swings the bat less often than anyone else in baseball. Um, and so he stands there and just takes pitches and takes pitches. And I think eventually, uh, as his career goes, pitchers may be less willing to pitch around him and more willing to challenge him. And it would be interesting to see if Gardner can sustain this kind of high walk rate going forward uh, unless he swings that more often or hits for more power. All right, Cameron, I'm going to let you go. Uh, but, but uh, you know, glad you had a, a nice holiday. Uh, and, of course, uh, I wish you luck in your treatment of coming here. Thanks. I uh, look forward to being done with chemotherapy once and for all, and hopefully in 2012 we can talk more baseball than, uh, than cancer treatment. Yeah, let's do that. That's Dave Cameron.
our uh, full-time employee. And what's your what's your exact title? Uh, managing editor, I think. Managing editor, right? That's him. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Ben Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>